Turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. You can also go on cc.guide, click on talk notes, follow along with us as we do uh, a dive over the next five, six weeks into Colossians. A couple times a year, we're just simply going to go through uh, a book or a couple books of the Bible. Uh, last fall, I know we did a uh, book of Revelation this, this year, uh, this fall, doing my favorite New Testament book. And, and the reason this is my new favorite, uh, my new favorite, my favorite New Testament book because I believe the potential this book has to transform your life, uh, it, it really is amazing. Because as we get into this, how do you not just know about the work of Jesus, but how do you live in light of the resurrection? How does it transform your daily life? If you're struggling through difficulty and sin and struggles, what does it mean to be empowered by God? And, and we're going to wrestle with that. Uh, I, I bet if I had some of you uh, take out your phone and look at a text message thread with you and your spouse or you uh, maybe in a really good friend, it would probably be pretty funny to read. Because how many know after a while you get to know somebody so well that you don't have to like use complete sentences, right? Or phrases and you just have certain way of talking and insider language and emojis that you use and you can say things to certain people that you can't say to other people. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like you can text that to them but you can't text that same thing to everybody else. Anybody there, right? Has anybody ever texted somebody uh, and you've sent the message to the wrong person? Anybody ever done something like that? And immediately, like as it's sending, you realize it in the middle of it and you can't take it back. It's cool if it's innocent, but what if it's not so innocent? Uh, a couple years ago, we had a lot of the Tulsa Drillers baseball team. This is when they were with the Iraqis affiliation and they were coming here and there was a pitcher of theirs who I was mentoring one-on-one. -on -one. He was leading people on the team to Jesus. And so like every week we had more of the baseball team coming and, and I was meeting with him weekly and he was like, I want to lead every person on the team to Jesus. And, and, and I remember he got called up to the Rockies. He was a relief pitcher. And one day I texted something to my wife that I can only text to my wife. If you're married, you get my drift. And I sent it to him by accident. And I literally pull up my phone, get out my ESPN app, and he is pitching that afternoon. Like, I don't know if he's got his cell phone in his bullpen, but his pastor just sent him something inappropriate. <laughs> and I just sent him a quick, quick like, hey, hope, hope you do well today in the majors. Like, congratulations, by the way, that last text was not for you. It was the person that I'm in covenant with, all right? Come on now. That I can talk to you like that. I can tell this story because uh, they no longer, they moved to a different uh, city, so no longer attend our church. But a few years back, a guy that I was kind of walking with, and he sent me a, a text one day, and I can't tell you exactly what it said because this is church, but it was something about preferring the backside of a woman over the front side of the woman. And I, I remember reading this text and been like, nope, he didn't mean to send that <laughs> to his pastor. And so I let like 20, 30 minutes go by to see if he's going to pick up on it which he never does. And so I just reply to him like, hey bro, been wondering that myself for a long time. Thanks for clearing it up. <laughs> then watching the text bubble come up with the dots, like as he pieces together that I just sent my pastor that text message. Come on now, it didn't get better than that. <laughs> that fed my soul, come on. That we still to this day, when we have a conversation, he laughs at that and says, remember when I sent you, I absolutely remember when you sent me that text message. It's good stuff. Can you imagine reading a text message, a letter, an email between two people who have a long history and a backstory? Like that's, that's the tension that you and I are about to, to wade into when we're talking about good biblical interpretation. Most people don't do good biblical interpretation or biblical exegesis. What they do is they figure out what they believe and then they go to the text and find the scriptures that back up what they already believe. 
which is dangerous because you can end up saying, making the Bible say whatever you want it to say, and a lot of people do. They'll misuse it. But when you have people in relationship, what happens is, there is there's insider language, there's previous messages that don't have to be repeated because guess what? We already talked about that, right? There's certain phrases and words that you use because there's familiarity. And, and not only that, but part of the biblical interpretation issue is that we didn't live 2,000 years ago, Right? There's a different cultural context that we're dealing with. These are all of the things that you and I have to wade through. And a lot of people don't want to do the work, but let me tell you, we have to be willing to do the work. It doesn't mean you have to be a theologian or a biblical scholar, but you have to do enough work to take these Pauline letters, right? Because you're reading someone else's mail and you have to do a little bit of work to figure out what Paul is saying, right? Who is writing the letter? Why are they writing? What's the occasion? What's the time period that it's writing? I tell people at a minimum, um, you can find an intro book to the New Testament or Old Testament, or you can find a study Bible that has a, a little bit before each book that says, this is who's writing, this is why they're writing, this is the time, this is the cultural setting. Because that little bit of information will change how you read scripture. Are you with me? Especially the Pauline epistles. Especially because you're reading someone else's mail. Does it apply to us today? Can we apply it? Absolutely. Is it written to us? No. So for us to be able to extrapolate truth from the text, we have to go back and figure out what did they mean when they said it? Not what we think they meant or not seeing it through the eyes of the 21st century, but what did it mean to Paul in the first century? And this is difficult. Like it gets really difficult when you start talking about like when Paul says the women should be silent and people are like, "Mm -mm, I don't want anybody that like that. That was a very specific cultural context in a church that it was dealing with this very specific thing. Right, so we have to do the work to be able to understand the truth of it. Let me summarize some of Colossians for you real quickly. I did some of the work for you already because that's what I'm supposed to do, right? <laughs> Here it is. In a city dominated by the Roman Empire, false teachers and a blending of beliefs, Paul writes a subversive letter to the church at Colossae calling them to a different way of life. In this letter, Paul invites the church to reshape their imagination around a world saturated with Christ to stand faithful against the bombardment of false gospels and to set their hearts, minds, and lives on the reality of the resurrection of Christ. That's what we're gonna do over the next five, six weeks. Now, some of the complexities of, of who wrote this and why was it written and things of that nature as Paul is writing this letter, and let me say Colossians is actually highly debated whether Paul wrote it or not. I believe that Paul was behind the letter, but sometimes Paul had someone write it for him. He could have been dictating a letter to someone else, but we have... Greek that's used in Colossians that's not used in other Pauline epistles. Uh, Paul always describes it this way, but in Colossians it's described this way, which can make us, lead us to believe that someone else was actually penning it and Paul was behind it. Um, but Paul and Timothy are writing this letter uh, to the church in Colossae, which they did not, uh, they weren't the founders of this church. It was founded by a, a gentleman named Epaphras. Epaphras came to know Jesus in Ephesus because Paul and Timothy were living in Ephesus at that time. So I want you to follow this because it does matter. Epaphras founded the church. He goes back to Colossae where his home church was, preaches the gospel, the church is born. So why doesn't Epaphras take this letter back to the church? We don't know. Maybe Epaphras was in prison. A lot of people think he may have been in prison at the same time Paul. Paul is writing this letter from prison. So a guy by the name of Tychicus, if you're looking for a new baby name, that's available, Tychicus. He takes the letter for Paul back to the church in Colossae. So written from Paul and Timothy, church founded by Epaphras, the letter is actually transferred by Tychicus, 
the setting for where we get the book of Colossians. Two main cultural factors that are gonna help us understand where we're going over the next five or six weeks. Number one, the Roman Empire. You can't understand what Paul is writing or the context unless you understand the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire was everything. It was the dominant structure of the day. This is the middle of the Pax Romana, the Roman Empire expanding. Everything was dominated by Rome, by Caesar, by the emperor. Rome was seen in this world as the source of fruitful abundance. The hope of the world was Rome and conquest. They were salvation. If, if there was a problem, the answer was Rome. They were the leader in the military and politics and economic. They were also, there was also systems of oppression and conquest that were set up under the Roman Empire. The coins would have had the emperor's seal on it. The banners, the architecture, the buildings, the roads, the festivals, the celebration, everything was celebrating Rome. What Rome represented, the hope of the world. This is gonna be really important for us in just a minute when we jump into the text. Here's also a struggle with the book of Colossians. Paul is writing this book because the church is struggling with a heresy. There's some false teaching that is creeping in, that is, that is influencing the church. And so Paul's gonna write as a spiritual father to this church to warn them. But here's the thing. Remember, we're reading someone else's mail. So he never tells us what the Colossian heresy is. He never tells us because it's assumed. Both parties already know. Maybe there was another letter. Maybe, again, Paphras goes to Paul. He says, hey, here's what's happening. These false teachers are coming in. They're, gonna, they're leading the church astray. I'm worried about it. Paul, as a good spiritual father, says, I'm gonna write them a letter. I'm gonna help them. So we never actually know exactly what the Colossian heresy is. But here's what we do, because this is what good theological work does. We take Paul's argument that he makes in Colossians and we go back and we can actually kind of outline what we believe the heresy was. Are you with me? Because of what Paul does. So the Colossian heresy seemed to be a blending of modern day mysticism. This is just the modern day ideologies and worldviews, the same kind of world that we live in today. Actually, I skipped one after the Roman empire, two main cultural factors. Some of you are like, don't skip it, pastor. What is it? Number two is syncretism. It's a world of syncretism. Syncretism is just a fancy word for a blending of religions and beliefs. Colossae was a city where people were taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of cultural values and a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of Judaism and a little bit of folklore and a little bit of mysticism and I'm gonna make a religion that fits what I want. Sound familiar? Right? Some things don't change in 2,000 years. And it was a world of syncretism where you had this Roman power and then just I'm gonna make Christianity look like I want it to look. So the Colossian heresy seemed to blend some modern day mysticism, local Judaism, and bits of Christianity. Can I tell you every heresy that the early church had to fight and the same heresies that we have to fight today, what they do is they take Christianity in the person of Jesus and they simply try to add to it. Yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to do this. You also need to believe this. When you add anything to the person of Jesus, Jesus no longer is sufficient for salvation. Now you need something else. You have literally wiped the legs out of the feet of, of the power of the cross to say, yeah, I need the cross, but I also need this. No, the cross is fully sufficient to lead us to salvation and life. If you add anything to it, that is now a heretical teaching that, that we fight against. Remember, we have liberty in non-essential matters, but the essential matters of our faith, we fight for, right? That's one of our roles as the church. We will fight for the truth of the gospel. And so if anybody tries to add to the gospel to say, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need to dress this way. You need to look this way. You need to do these things. We're like, no, no, the cross is fully sufficient. 
And that's what you have in this context that we're going to be reading about because you can't read Colossians without knowing that they're fighting against some sort of heresy. So what is Paul going to do about this? What's, going to, what's Paul going to do in light of all of these troubles the church in Colossae is facing? I'm so glad you asked. And it's a really good answer because he's going to write this masterful letter inviting the Colossians to reimagine all of life through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He is going to to ask them to reimagine a world where Christ is not just a part of the solution, but Christ is in everything, everywhere, has created all of the universe and is now dictating all of life. That there is a reality behind the realities they are facing and that they see. He's gonna paint a picture, a vision of the beauty of the gospel that is so amazing and so compelling that guess what? The Colossians will never wanna walk away from it. I think Pastor Bodie preached a message on generations a few weeks ago that I thought he did a great job. And one of the things he talked about was we have to paint a picture of the gospel for the next generation that's more compelling than the story the world is is telling, right? Like our next generation of young people, we have to invite them into the story of God that, 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 that captures the heart that says God has purpose. It's a life of adventure. It's a life of mission. It's not a life of sitting in a seat on Sunday morning and listening to a message because they want to be a part of a living story. And the gospel is a living, moving story. And Paul is about to sweep the church up in this picture of reimagining what the church and a relationship with Jesus can be. And saying that Colossians chapter one, starting in verse one, it may may say chapter three on there, that's wrong. It's chapter one, starting in verse one says this, that's my mess up. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. This is a pretty, pretty typical Pauline introduction. But look what Paul says. He calls them God's holy people. You know, you're set apart. You're different from the world. He's addressing them specifically because he's setting them up for what he's about to say in regards to the heresies that they're facing. No, you're set apart. You're you're faithful to the faith. I want to stop and I want to do something real quick. And this is not the main crux of Colossians chapter one, but I think it's worth talking about. In Colossians chapter one, like all Pauline epistles, we see the beauty of spiritual authority and the power of spiritual mothering and fathering. Now, now when I even use the phrase spiritual authority, there's some of you in the room that cringe because you came from spiritual authority that abused you, that manipulated you. I'm, I'm continually amazed and I have conversations with people of how many times they have been Uh, manipulated by people who claim to be spiritual leaders or claim to be spiritual authorities, but they use that spiritual authorities um, in a manipulative way. If you're in the room and, and that's you, I'm so sorry that that is what you've experienced. Let me also say this, just because you were hurt or abused doesn't mean that you can set out of, of, of the race of life and say, you know what, I'm no longer going to submit myself to any authorities because there is beauty and power in being under healthy spiritual authority. I, I think we actually flourish when we have godly spiritual authority that is praying for us and wrestling for the gospel in our lives, in our church. When we have shepherds who are looking at the world around us and saying, I wanna keep you from the wolves and I wanna keep you from straying into false doctrines and false beliefs. And so I love you enough to say what may be difficult to hear. Anybody there? How many know we need that? 
That, that, there's a blessing in that to be admonished. Admonished is not just telling you the good things. Admonishing is saying, I love you enough to say the difficult things because I want to lead you to life. Amen. And I have been blessed in my life by incredible spiritual moms and dads. And and let me just say this. I I believe more in just raising up disciples at City Church. I want to raise up spiritual mothers and fathers because we have people all in our generation and our young people, especially people in our church who are craving for spiritual mothers and fathers. People who will just look at me and affirm who I am in Christ. I, I was so blessed to have biological mom and dad who showed me that. But also, I have been blessed, and I would not be here today without spiritual moms and dads. Uh, my wife and I both grew up in the same large church together in Oklahoma City, a youth group of hundreds of people. And our story, if you heard it, it would take us a long time to tell it. My wife and I grew up around each other a lot, not only because we went to the same church, uh, but because the youth pastor, he mentored me one-on-one. He saw something in me, and he brought me aside and said, I want to I, I, I help lead you to Jesus and develop God in you. And his wife uh, did that with now my wife. So we weren't even dating at the time, but Lindsay and I were always in the same context because we were being mentored by the same couple. Jason and Michelle Morris, they are uh, campus pastors at People's Church in Oklahoma City. We're so grateful that the closer we got to their lives, the more that we saw Jesus. How many know there's something about it when your spiritual uh, authority in your life are authentic and real? When the same thing that they preach and you see their life offstage and it matters their onstage life, how many know that matters? That's a big deal. And I've carried that with me even as a pastor to say, you know what? I understand that what I do offstage will affect people because they'll hear me on, on stage and you'll assume certain things about me. But how do I act? How do I treat my spouse? How do I treat my kids? Am I the same person? Is there consistency? Our pastors, Lindsay and I's pastors are Roddy and Shannon Fouts. They pastor North Church in Oklahoma City. It's our, it's our founding, our home church. And I'm so grateful for a spiritual father that when I was wrestling with the call of God in my life and I I felt called to go plant a church and I did not want to plant a church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That was not a cool city. And I wanted to go East Coast, West Coast, like God send me to San Diego, but not to Tulsa. And I went to my spiritual father who I was on staff at that church at that time. Instead of telling me just to stay put and I just need to stay there and I need to work hard because he was so many leaders are insecure and they can't, they don't send anybody. He looked at me and he said, I see the call of God in your life and we're going to discern whether or not this is the right time for you to go or not. I'm so grateful for spiritual leadership who's healthy. I, I wouldn't be here today without spiritual moms and dads. My wife and I were a part of a network of church planting leaders led by Scott and Jenny Wilson. Uh, Scott was the pastor of Oaks Church uh, in the Waxahachie, South Dallas area. Now we're in a, a cohort of leaders with him and he is a spiritual father in my life. There's a lot of Sundays before I get up here on stage that he sends me a text message praying God would specifically use you today, that God would speak through your life. I pray anointing to be on your life. I'm, I'm so grateful for men and women like that. And, and my, Scott is particularly passionate about spiritual fathering and he actually gave me a list the other day and I'm gonna share his list with you. And I'm going to take time out of our message because I think this is this important. And you see this in Colossians. What does a good spiritual father and mother do? Number one, spiritual fathers and mothers, they connect. They connect to the deepest level. The counterfeit to connection is manipulation. If you are in a setting with spiritual authority and there's manipulation, you need to remove yourself in a loving, in in an honoring way. You don't have to dishonor authority in order to remove yourself from it right? That's that's something we have to learn how to do. We can honor the person without honoring what they do or what they say. Um, The opposite is manipulation, but spiritual moms and dads, they connect. 
The second thing is this, spiritual fathers and mothers, they affirm, affirm. Do you know that deep down inside, all of us are looking for affirmation? I've been in a room with 50 and 60-year-old businessmen who have started million-dollar companies, and someone will look at them and affirm at the deepest level of who they are and their identity, and they will literally begin to weep because no one in their life has ever affirmed who they are. I call this prophetic affirmation. Prophetic affirmation is when spiritual moms and dads look at someone and they say, guess what? You are not what has happened to you, what someone has said. You're not what you do for a living. You're not what you think about yourself. This is who you are in Christ. And I speak that life over you. Has anybody ever had that happen to them? There's nothing more powerful than that. Lindsay and I get to lead a bunch of church planners in Seed Network. And this is one of the things when they come in for our retreat, they don't even know that we're going to do this. But in the first couple of sessions, we've been training them and walking with them. And we have a session where Lindsay and I just look at them and say, we are going to affirm who you are in Christ, regardless if you're ever successful in church planning. Because church planning doesn't define you. You're not first and foremost a pastor or a spiritual leader. You're a son and daughter. I think we crave someone to look at us and affirm our core identity in Christ. You know what the counterfeit to affirmation is? It's just flattery. I'm just going to tell you good things. Flattery is surface level. Affirmation is, is deep. It's at the core of who you are. Spiritual fathers and mothers, they guide. The counterfeit to guiding is controlling. And so many people, because they've never had someone guide them, they revert to controlling. No, you're going to do it my way. This, it's got to be done like this. I, I think as my kids get older, I got one who's moving into middle school now. Guess what? I control less and less because I can't control anymore. Like you, you parents in the room, when your kids are young, you're trying to keep them alive. Like if you keep them alive, it's a good day. But as they get older, guess what? It moves from control to influence, from control to guiding. The things that I've instilled in you now that you have to go and actually do it, right? Good spiritual fathers and mothers don't control, they guide. The last one is this, spiritual fathers and mothers provide. The counterfeit to this is spoiling, the counterfeit is saying, you know what, I'm going to give everything, I'm going to remove every obstacle in your life because I can. I don't want you to ever face hardship in life. And so I'm just going to make it as easy as possible. And what do you do? You keep them from ever growing, from ever wrestling through things. I, I was on a conversation a year ago with Scott Wilson, one of my spiritual fathers. And I was telling him, I said, man, I'm, I'm a little bit discouraged because after all this COVID stuff has happened, the prices have increased. We raised all the money for our new building. And guess what? We're going to be a million dollars short of where we need to be. So we have to raise a million more dollars. I'm just going to be honest with you. I was done fundraising. I had spent the last four years raising the necessary funds for us to move into our new building. And I didn't want to have to raise another million dollars. And he actually looked at me and we're on a phone call, a Zoom call together. And he says, you know what? I could probably call some people and have that money for you because he knows a lot of people, but I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna come alongside you and we're gonna believe God that he'll provide. Because how many know that's what a good spiritual father does? He doesn't just remove the obstacle because he can. He comes alongside you to help you to say, we're gonna trust God. He got you to this point. He's not gonna let you go, right? God's gonna continue to move in and through your church and God continues to provide. We're continuing to live by faith. Spiritual fathers and mothers provide. They don't spoil. Let's keep reading. As Paul, a spiritual father to his house, begins to pray this prayer over the church. He says, verse six, in the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard about it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the spirit. 
I want you to see the, the fathering mentality of Paul. To me, this is what made Paul such an incredible apostle or man of God. It's not just that he wrote these letters that are now canonized in our text, is that he saw himself like, no, I, I wanna come alongside you and I wanna further the gospel in your life. And sometimes that's protecting you. And he says, Epaphras has been telling me all the incredible things about your church. He tells me about people who are coming to know Jesus and how the church is growing and how it's bearing fruit. And then he says, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. Now I said earlier, right? A couple of things I said earlier, there's things, there's words that are used that there's more that just meets the eye. There's things beneath the surface. Here's what we have to know in the first century. The word gospel didn't just mean good news of Jesus, what Jesus has done to rescue it. It also meant any declaration of victory. It was good news that you've been victorious. It's the Greek word euangelion. So the emperor of Rome would often pronounce a gospel. He would make a declaration. You know what the good news is? We've just had victory over our enemies. We defeated another people group, our nation. Our empire is expanded. So what is Paul doing? Paul is knowingly using subversive language that the Colossians, Colossians would look and be like, oh, he just used that word. He could have used a lot of words, but he used a word that Rome uses all the time. And what is Paul using it in this context? He says, which gospel is really bearing fruit and growing? It's not the gospel of Rome. It's not the gospel of power and conquest. It's the gospel of sacrificial love, which Jesus has come to give. You can imagine that if someone finds this letter that Paul writes, that Paul wouldn't have just wrote uh, things about Rome because you write about Rome, you're gonna go to prison, which Paul was already in prison, they're gonna kill him. He would have used subversive language like this. He would have taken shots at Rome without taking a direct shot at them saying, no, Rome is not the salvation of the world. Salvation is found through the person of Jesus. Which gospel is bearing fruit? This week, I received a text message um, from good friends of ours. They're missionaries that house their, their home bases here, Stephen and Bailey Kurt. And Stephen and I sat in our offices down the street about eight years ago. And Stephen had spent five years teaching the Bible in Burundi, Africa. Burundi's right there, um, East Africa, right next to Kenya, uh, Rwanda, small little country. And the doors of Burundi were being opened for the first time for people from the outside to come in. And we began to dream about building a church planning school. And they had done the math. And if we had 220 churches in the country of Burundi, we could put a church within walking distance from almost every group and tribe in the entire country. It's a small little place. And we begin to dream and we begin to take trips and build the relationships. And Stephen, they were in, uh, for the first time, got to go across the border into Congo. Congo is like the wild west of this area. We haven't been able to go into the area. We're building a church planning school there. The church planning school that you guys paid for is open and running in Burundi now. He's been in Tanzania and he texted me this week and he said, hey, I just want you to know in the last like year to two years from when we started the church planning school, there are now 75 churches that have started in Burundi. He said, we started 10 primary schools now that we've built and paid for. The church planning school is at capacity. Every six months, about 50 graduates coming out of the church planning school. Like in a matter of a couple years, we will have a church within walking distance of every people group in that country. How many know the gospel is bearing fruit? It's growing. If you don't believe that the gospel is bearing fruit and lives are being changed and it's going forth, you need to get different people in your life. You need to get a different camera angle. Guess what, if you sit around and you watch the news all day or you just flip through Twitter, you think the world is all going to hell and everybody's losing their minds, don't you? Because it's negative. 
And yet the reality is, if you talk to people who are on the ground in the United States, church planting people overseas, the gospel is bearing fruit like never before. There, there, is, there, there are people coming to know Jesus in the Middle East, disciple-making movements. We have relationships in the South Africa area, how God is meeting people where they're at and leading them to Jesus like never before. If you don't have those voices in your life, you think that the gospel is dry and dormant, don't you? No, the gospel is bearing fruit. Nothing will change that. Let's keep reading verse nine. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. I want you to read the rest of this like a spiritual father praying and reading this over his church and over his people. Paul says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness, from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul loves a good run on sentence if you haven't learned that. No need for punctuation. And imagine you're a spiritual father and you're gonna pray this prayer. And next week we get into probably the most powerful poem. It's eight, eight verses that Paul speaks that's going to completely reshape the imagination and the understanding of the people. But in this first part, he greets them and he prays a prayer over them. And this is what I want for you. This is what I desire for you. As a spiritual father who has, who has mentored you from afar, this is what I want to be developed in you. We're gonna look at these four things really quickly. What does it look like for us to grow in spiritual maturity, to grow up in Christ according to Paul's prayer? Number one, he says, to be filled with the knowledge of God and his will. He says, I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of who God is. Why, why do you need to be filled? Because you're not yet full, Right? And Paul prays that they will attain a deep abiding revelation of Christ and his divine plan to redeem all of creation. Not that you would just know about Christ. How many know some of us who grew up in church, we know a lot about Christ, but do we know Christ? Is it revelation to us? Like not just salvation for me. It's like it's, your salvation is not just a get out of hell free card. No, that God is redeeming the world and all of creation. That God has a purpose and plan. That his story is the story above all other stories. That God will renew the heavens and earth and come down. And everything that was broken because of sin will be made new again. Does that story capture you? Does that knowledge of God overwhelm us, guide us and lead us? He says, I want you to gain this knowledge of his will through all wisdom. And we need wisdom to understand this. And through all understanding, sometimes this understanding only comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. That Holy Spirit takes knowledge that we know and turns it into deep understanding and awareness of God's purposes and plans. Number two, Paul prays this, to gain a life that reflects Christ. Out of this knowledge of God and his will, I pray that you would live a life that reflects Christ. He prays, live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in all things. That our knowledge of God will actually lead us to a holy life and a transformed life. Let, let me break this down real quick before we wrap this up this morning. There are people that if you're going through a marriage crisis, 
You go to counseling, we need help, we need to go somewhere, and you absolutely should do those things. Someone who is, is stuck in addiction, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work the steps, I'm gonna go through the 12-step program, I'm gonna get in a recovery group. You need that accountability. All those things are not inherently bad. But why do so many times when we're, when we're in, this, uh, in this area, do we struggle to actually live a transformed life? Why do we struggle and we often go back to some of our old patterns and ways? Because if you don't change your understanding of who God is, the fundamental level, then ultimately your behavior will not change. Are you with me? We have to change our understanding of God. Why when I'm dealing with someone and I have men all the time that come to me and say, pastor, I'm, I'm, I'm addicted to pornography. And what do I do? I say, number one, we're gonna start with spiritual formation. We're gonna start on the deepest level of who God says that you are, your identity in Christ, your understanding of Christ, because I've learned this in 16 years of full-time ministry, most people have fundamentally, fundamentally misunderstood who, who Jesus is and who God is. They think God's disappointed with them. How do you have an intimate relationship with God if you feel like God is disappointed with you? How, how do you have an intimate relationship with God if you feel like God is distant and uninvolved how do you have an intimate relationship with God if you felt like God was gone when you needed him the most? Are you with me? And yet we walk around with these false beliefs about who God is. And we wonder why we don't have an intimate relationship with God. We, we wonder why we're, we're not in tune with the work of the Spirit in our life. It's because fundamentally you have to change your understanding of who God is. That God loves you. That God is passionately pursuing you. We have to remind ourselves, what's the clearest picture of who God is in our lives? It's the life of Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks about, what God would talk like, what God does, you look at the life of Jesus and let me tell you, God is for you. What does Jesus do with the woman caught in adultery? What does Jesus do with the, the son who walks away and is trying to win the affection of God? What, what, is, what does Jesus do when there's a hundred sheep and one goes astray? What, do you, what does he do? That's God's heart for you. That's how much God loves you. Like it's a knowledge of God and his will. When I'm walking with these men through this, through addiction, I, we're gonna start, we're gonna, we're gonna rediscover who God is for us and we're gonna start with spiritual maturity. We're gonna, we're gonna put boundaries in the right people in our life and what are the things that we need uh, to be free? Relationships, the community, all these aspects and we're gonna put them together in a way that leads us to a transformed life. If you want to move beyond just sin management and behavior management in your life, you have to understand who God is. Who God is. To gain a life that reflects Christ. As you grow in your knowledge and understanding of God, your conduct will change and you will produce the fruit of the Spirit. You cannot manufacture the fruit of the Spirit. You can't try to be a good person. You can't try to be more loving. No, that is the deep work of God in your life as your knowledge of God grows. Number three, what does Paul pray? To gain the power and strength to persevere. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Now, what you know about Colossians, what we already said, why would Paul pray that over him and the church? He would pray that over the church because they are going through a struggle with this false teaching, right? So he's saying, I'm praying that the spirit of God would give you the power to hold on and persevere to not let go. The hope of heavenly glory in the future requires patience and endurance in the present. Can you endure the struggles that will come your way? 
Let me ask you this, what has the potential from cutting you off in your relationship with Christ and your future glory? If you were the enemy, what would you do in your life to cut you off from Christ? What are the tactics you would use? You gotta be self-aware enough to know where your weaknesses are. I know exactly where my weaknesses are. I know where the holes in my armor tend to be. I know that if I don't have my shield up and if I'm not protected in these areas and I drop my guard for just a minute, the enemy will exploit that area in my life. Is it hurt and resentment? Doubt? And taking on just a, a cultural gospel? What are the things that the enemy uses in your life? What will require patience and endurance in your life? Here's a really uncomfortable truth that you have to be willing to wrestle with. There are sometimes that God removes those things in our life, the discomfort, and sometimes God allows you to walk through that. What did he do with Paul? No, Paul, I'm not taking the thorn in the flesh this time, but through not taking that thorn, I'm gonna show you that my grace is sufficient and you're gonna have to endure and you're gonna have to be patient even in your suffering because I'm gonna do things in that. I'm gonna work in you. The last one is this. Paul prays that they would gain joy through the work of the gospel. I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of God. I pray that you would live a life that reflects Christ. I pray that you would have the power and strength to persevere. And I pray that you would do all of this to gain joy through the work of the gospel. Verse 12, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Joy, joy in your relationship with Christ comes from an awareness that you are sinful and that you cannot rescue yourself. It's why every Sunday morning that we come to the table, we take communion together. And what do I say every Sunday? And I'm about to say it in a few minutes. I'm going to say, take the next 30 seconds to a minute and express in your heart gratitude for what God has done. Because that's the only response, isn't it? The only response to the gospel is not like, oh, I was a pretty good person, so I kind of deserved it anyway. Right? No, our response to the gospel is, I deserved death and I was living in the kingdom of darkness without life. And Jesus, through his sacrifice, gave me life. That leads to joy and gratitude and contentment. Not because we're deserving, but because we're not. The last thing is this, your joy is not rooted in circumstances or pleasures or the things of this world, but in the reality of Christ's saving work in your life that moved you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life. And if you've grown up around the church, I, I can't tell you why the Spirit of God sometimes makes this revelation. Like I literally, my grandfather was a pastor. I grew up just running in the pews because they lived in, my, in a parsonage right behind the church. Like that was literally my playground was the church. My parents, we were in church. Sunday morning, obviously. Sunday night, Monday night was prayer meeting. Wednesday night was youth. Thursday, Friday night was something else. I don't know. Like literally, like we're every night. Why on June 23rd, 1998? And I can't, I can't, 20 something years, I still can't talk about. Why on that night at 10, 15 p.m. when the whole room had cleared out, why did God meet me in that moment as a 14 year old kid? I can't tell you. 
why when I was 23 years old in a master's degree in theology, sitting in a room with 12 other pastors that I didn't know very well. And we're doing a Lectio Divina, we're reading the scripture and we're reading the story of Martha and Mary and the spirit of God so clear. Are you ready to stop living like Martha? I wanna lead you into a merry life. I start to weep in the middle of a class, like it's not appropriate. I don't know these people very well. They're like, what's up with this weirdo, right? Why, I don't know. It doesn't mean it has to be an emotional moment, but I just think there's moments where the spirit of God makes it revelation. And I can't tell you when, and I can't tell you how, but here's what I can tell you. As you begin to seek more of God and you begin to create more spaces in your life for God to move, God will increasingly make that revelation to you. I do know that works. It may be in the morning. It may be you turn off your radio in your car and you sit, literally sit and you begin to contemplate who God is and God begins to reveal, the Holy Spirit begins to reveal, make it revelation that where it's not just words on a page, it's not just something you grew up believing, but it's life and it's hope. And can I tell you as a spiritual authority and leader in your life, my prayer for you and my prayer for us, that we would grow in the knowledge of God and his will, that it would so overwhelm our hearts that it would lead us to a changed life, a transformed life, a holy life. Would you stand with me across this room? If you have your communion elements and you wanna grab them, we're gonna take in just a minute. And if you would just close your eyes right where you're at. If you would give me the next two minutes. No one moving around. The next two minutes. Just close your eyes right where you're at. Don't think about what you're gonna eat for lunch. Is it still raining outside? Who cares? What flavor of snow cone am I gonna? No, just give me the next two minutes, right? What is the Holy Spirit wanting to reveal to you? I'm telling you, when we make space, the Holy Spirit will speak and it doesn't have to be on Sunday morning. The Holy Spirit is literally chasing you down every day, wanting to speak, wanting to guide, wanting to comfort, wanting to heal. We are so busy. We have so many noises in our life, so many distractions. Holy Spirit, we just ask right now, we stop. God, we wanna gain a knowledge of you. Like Paul prayed over this church 2000 years ago, we pray this over us today to be filled with the knowledge and the understanding of God. God, we don't want it to be just head knowledge. We don't want it to just to know it in our head, but not to, to understand it in our heart. So would you make this revelation? that we were dead in our sin, in the kingdom of darkness, without hope, without future. And you came for us. You gave your life for us. And our future and our hope is secure. We don't have anything to fear if we are in Christ. That this world is passing and our life is in you. You have prepared a place for us, Father. God, I just pray this morning, whether it's today, whether it's tomorrow, 
next week, next month. God, fill us with the knowledge of your will. Let us be overwhelmed by the love of Christ. Every week we come to the table. This reminds us who we are in Christ. We practice open communion here at City Church, so anybody who wants to know more of Jesus and wants to experience Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table with us. This is a moment we remind ourselves we are not what we do for a living. You're not what someone has said. You're not what you did five years ago, a year ago, a month ago, last week, or yesterday. You're who Jesus says that you are, and he calls you sons and daughters. So we lay aside all of our false identities and all the things that we pick up during the week. And we come to the table. And we remind ourselves that we are children of God. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he passed around the bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. I'm gonna be ripped together and torn apart so that you can be put back together and be made whole. Let's take the body of Christ together. Jesus took the cup, new covenant. My blood poured out for you. No longer will you have to go through all of the offerings and sacrifices because I'm gonna be the sacrifice once and for all that my blood will cover you. We're so grateful for the blood of Jesus. Let's take together. Can we take the last 30 seconds to a minute and just tell God, thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for grace. Thank you for second and third and 50th chances, Father. Thank you for patience with me. Thank you for continuing to pursue me. God, thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for hope and life that exists far beyond this one, Father. Thank you that you walked with me through every struggle, every difficulty. You sustain me, you carry me, you uphold me. Thank you, Father, that you leave the 99 and you go find me. How many times have you had to go find me, Father? God, thank you that you look at me. Oh. And you say, where are all your accusers? Oh, they're gone. Neither do I accuse you. Go. Leave your life of sin. Thank you, Father, that you wrap your robe around me. You give me a ring on my finger when I'm still trying to argue my way back into your house. Thank you, Father. God, I pray, Lord, that we would live a life of gratitude, that we would walk out of these doors overwhelmed with thankfulness people that have been rescued, set free, delivered, and saved. Father, thank you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. City Church, thanks for worshiping with us this morning.
uh, I know I probably say this every week, next week, eight verses, a Christ poem that Paul writes in, first, in Colossians chapter one, I think is the most powerful. I've been looking forward to preaching it for a long time. I think it'll, it, it'll, it'll bless you. Uh, there are snow cones outside, so please help yourself. Stick around, meet some people that you don't know. Ask our prayer team to come forward if any of our elders are in the room as well. I know every week people come in carrying weights that are heavy. And if you need to pray with somebody, please don't leave before uh, you stop with someone and just uh, allow them to, to pray with you. And then if you're a first-time guest, I'd love to meet you in the welcome room just across the lobby, just 30 seconds of your time as we have a free gift for you. Let's stand with our mission statement. Go live it out this week wherever you are. Be the gospel.